What do you think is the primary reason that the world says no to Jesus? Is it because trusting Christ as Savior and Lord has a faith element to it? And people will declare that they can't believe in something they can't see and therefore they turn away? Is it because so many of them are convinced of the evolutionary theory that uh, determines there is no God? There are no creator, no God. Is that why most people in the world turn away from Christ? Or is it simply that the world loves darkness more than light? The correct answer, according to Jesus, is C. Jesus himself made the claim in John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. He further stated in John 15, 18 through 22, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you no longer belong to the world. I chose you to come out of the world, and so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. And since they persecuted me naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them, but now they have no excuse for their sin. There has been and always will be this natural line of division between the church or the body of Christ, and the world. The world has taken a very adversarial mindset toward this division, this distinction of our being Christians. And in fact, a pattern has developed I studied uh, through the Gospels and into the book of Acts. And you can, in fact, find a pattern in the church versus the world. You can see it in the life of Jesus. You can see the same pattern in the life of the early church. And I believe this pattern has implications for us today. This pattern 
consists of these five terms. <coughs> these five terms, toleration, agitation, indignation, intimidation, and then eradication. Follow me as we see uh, close up how these five elements fit into Jesus and his relationship to the world, the early church and its relationship to the world, and now today where we are in that pattern in this conflict between the world and the church. Again, we start with the ministry of the Lord Jesus. There indeed was a time of toleration that the world had with the person of Jesus. Early on, many saw him as a carnival act, a sideshow uh, that people wanted to watch. Others came to him because he occasionally fed them. But soon that toleration grew old and a period of agitation started, particularly with the religious leaders. The religious leaders would often question Jesus, trying to stump him, trying to catch him off guard many times, but they were never successful. Take, for instance, in John 8, 1 through 11, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Given the entirety of that story, what seems to have happened was this, that there were some religious leaders who connived to try to trick Jesus. And so they set up this scenario. Some poor lady they caught in the act of adultery. They then dragged her to the stoning pit and they asked Jesus, this one was caught in the act of adultery. Moses says she should be stoned when in fact the law of Moses said that both should be stoned. But they were only interested in this scenario. And so they brought her to Jesus and said, now what do you say? Trying to trick him. If he said, well, uh, the law of Moses is still uh, the law of the land and they would have stoned her then. But instead, in the wisdom of God, Jesus said to him, you without sin cast the first stone. And they all dropped them and walked away. And Jesus forgave this lady. So a sense of agitation grew in the hearts of those opposed to Jesus. But then an incident took place where the stakes were raised. An incident of indignation found in Luke chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 11. Ring for from the New Living Translation. <coughs> Luke 6, I'm sorry, 6 through 11. Luke 6, 6 through 11. On another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of religious law and Pharisees watched Jesus closely because if he healed this man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward, and Jesus looked at the critics and said, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them one by one and then said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. And then look at verse 11. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. This incident in the life of the Lord Jesus so enraged these religious leaders of the world that they went crazy. The, the terminology in the Greek is they, their, their thoughts just soared to the heavens. They couldn't wrap their minds around who he was, and it, it just drove them insane. Now, look what happens in Matthew Verses one and uh, verses three through five. <clears throat> at that same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high, the high priest, and look what they were doing: plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But they said, not during the Passover celebration, or other people may riot. Well, in fact, they executed those plans. They had Jesus arrested by the temple police. And you know the story as they brought him before the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate wanted to let him go. Pilate even brought him an audience with Herod, and Herod found no fault with him. But the crowd was enraged, shouting, crucify him. Let the murderer Barabbas walk the streets with us, but kill Jesus. Pilate then tried to satiate their hatred and their anger by having Jesus beaten severely, and then he was going to let him go. But the story ends with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. They thought they eradicated the problem, but in fact, they didn't. 
The story of the early church follows a, a, a close uh, line of thought with the world and Jesus. There was early on with the early church a time of toleration. Look with me in Acts 2, uh, verses 12 through 13. Quickly, I'll give you the setting. The setting is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the people in, in clouds of uh, uh, fire and tongues of fire, and each one began speaking the gospel of Jesus in another person's language. Uh, God was among them. It was a one-time blessed event from uh, the Lord. Those who had come just to watch were stunned and shocked at what they saw. And in verses 12 through 13 of Acts 2, we're told that they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Those who just came to watch at least a portion saw what was going on in this holy moment, and they began to jeer, and they began to mock. In other words, they considered them harmless. Again, a sideshow, a freak event. But that didn't last long. This mood of agitation set in in Acts chapter 4. Before I read uh, verses 1 through 4 of Acts 4, let me give you again the context. In Acts 3, Peter and John had gone to the temple and they found a man begging, begging for alms. And instead, Peter looked at him and said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And of course the man did. Well, it caused such a ruckus that um, it brought in the government, the temple police, uh, and the relig religious leaders, of course, and here's what happened then at the end of that story in chapter 4 of Acts. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests and the captain of the temple guard, some of the Sadducees, and these leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. So they were arrested, and since it was already evening, he put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, and so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. And so in this situation, uh, the authorities became upset and aggravated at what Peter and John were doing. And so they arrested them and put them in jail overnight. 
But the incident that caused this thing to blow up is in Acts chapter 5, verses, uh, verse 33. Here we read that when, Her when they heard, uh, the high council heard, they were furious. They were enraged. What made this, this incident different than the rest was that the, they were arrested a second time for preaching the gospel of Jesus. They were put again in prison. But while they were in prison, an angel of the Lord came and unlocked the door and released them and told them to go in the morning back and begin preaching the gospel again. And so they did that. Well, the religious leaders and the government peoples and the authorities couldn't believe what had happened. They had put them in prison the night before, and here they are the next morning preaching again the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it so enraged them, created jealousy within them, that, again, when they heard it, that they were back, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. And in fact, those plans would have been carried out had it not been for one among the Sanhedrin. He caused them to kind of calm down. His name was Gamaliel. And he said, look, there have been others who have claimed to be the Son of God. There have been others who have said that they were prophets, and we found out that they were not. He said, if this is of God, we don't want to fight it. And so as a group, they decided just to have them beaten and released. But we find that their goodwill didn't last very long because the very next person to be arrested as a Christian for speaking God's truth was a young man named Stephen. By all accounts, this was a fantastic young man, a man of God and a servant of mankind. But when they accused Stephen of blasphemy, he let them have it. Look in Acts 7, in verses 54 through 60. Look what happens after this incident of... of, of um, uh, what's the term? Incident of indignation. <laughs> the incident of indignation that twisted their insides and pushed them forward that they were going to indeed eradicate the problem. Acts 7, 
54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at at God's right hand, and he told them, look, I see the heavens open, (coughs) and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. They put their hands over their ears. They began shouting. They rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And then he died. The story of Jesus and his relationship to the world. The story of the early church, their relationship to the world. Now us today. I think it's a true statement to claim that over our 244-year history that America has been tolerant of churches and Christians. One of the principles upon which this country was founded was the freedom of worship. But in recent years, that value has faded. I think we've moved from toleration to agitation Because I believe a person has to be in dark deception or illogical delusion not to realize that a bias exists today in our culture against the people of God. Just this past week, a lady named Betsy Driver, she is the mayor of Flemington, New Jersey, and speaking of The president and the Supreme Court, she said, today religious zealots who want to enact a Christian version of Sharia law. She is likening the moving of the Church of Jesus Christ to Sharia law of the Muslim faith. And I have to stop there in her quotes because they're too vulgar and base to share in church. And folks, it may be that the pandemic we've had plus the death horrific death of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020 could be in our culture the incident of indignation that sets in gear an onward march of intimidation and persecution. You may ask, how can I say that? Only godless cultures persecute and kill Christians. Well, right now, 
one in nine Christians worldwide are experiencing high levels of persecution. One in nine. Every day, 11 Christians are killed for their faith. Right now, there are 11 countries in our world that are rated, 11 countries rated extreme persecution level. Five years ago, there was only one. It was North Korea. Godless cultures persecute Christians. The Barna Foundation, or Barna Group, is a research firm that Christians have trusted for decades. And the Barna Firm uh, group has now put out this statement. The coronavirus pandemic may well accelerate a loss of faith for the next generation. The pandemic may accelerate a loss of faith for the next generation. They described it like this. The generation to follow already had their hands on the knob of the door of their faith. And the pandemic and all of the issues related to the culture of today, they said they turned the knob and opened the door to exit faith. The statistics are so horrifying in terms of our losing our youth and our children. In a recent book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality by a lady named Jane, Jane Ward. In her book, she calls for an urgent academic examination of the many ways in which opposite-sex coupling, heterosexuality, biblical marriage, the ways that opposite-sex coupling can hurt the very individuals who cling to it the most. She then further states, claiming that heterosexuality is at the core of all the problems that our society faces. That attacks biblical marriage. That attacks the family, the nuclear family, as the, as the strength of our country. She is trying to reverse the course. There is no question that the tide is turning, that we are in a period uh, that we've not been in before. No longer is there attitude, you have to accept us. Now their attitude is, we don't accept you. Please understand, I'm not saying that we are beyond redemption. 
I'm not saying that God is not listening when we pray. I'm not saying he has forgotten us. But we don't know how far reaching God's patience will be. It's very possible if the church would repent, humble ourselves, pray, and seek his face, turning from our wicked ways that God may heal and restore our land, our family, our faith, and our land are worth fighting for. So what do we do? First of all, we repent and acknowledge that we have not loved God. We have not loved one another. We have not loved our neighbor as Jesus taught. And so we repent. Secondly, we, we renew. We renew to protect religious freedom and liberty of conscience. We renew to safeguard the nature and sanctity of human life. We renew to seek just and compassion, justice and compassion for the poor and vulnerable to strengthen marriage, families, and children, to pursue racial reconciliation, and to promote peace. We repent, we renew, and then we resolve. We resolve to do all of these things in the Spirit and in the power of the Lord Jesus. Let me read Psalm 67. As a prayer, we might pray. May God be merciful and bless us. May his face smile with favor upon us. May your ways be known throughout the earth, your saving power among people everywhere. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may the nations praise you. Let the whole earth sing for joy because you govern the nations with justice, and guide the people of the whole world. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may all the nations praise you. Then the earth will yield its harvests, and God, our God, will richly bless us. Yes, God will bless us, and people all over the world will fear him. What is our hope for today? It's to pray for our country. It's to pray for our leadership in our country. And it's to pray that godly men and women will be elected to those positions who will pursue truth and holiness and peace. 